When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 140, and we are recording on July 17th. I'm Jen Northington, and I'm here with Amanda Nelson, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Hi. How's it going? Good. I'm going on vacation next week, and I'm yeah. phoning everything in. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Do you already have, like, your floaty picked out? And Let me tell you that uh, at the grocery store, Aldi is our, like, local, whatever, um, right at child eye level, they have mm. now poop emoji pool slopes. <laughs> oh, my God. So my children, of course... <laughs> Now are the proud owners of seven dollar poop emoji pool floats. So that's <laughs> that's that's that was my vacation prep done. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Just I write, can't wait write to see those feet. pictures. <laughs> yes, it's going to be something. <laughs> um, fantastic. So, what are you reading in your phone in days? I. I have just started the Jurassic Park audiobook. And let me tell you why. It's because all of the Jurassic Park movies are now on Netflix. (gasps) Yes. Correct response. Yes. So I have been rewatching all of them. (laughs) I'm on the third one. Um, The Lost World is terrible. Let me just say that. Uh, So bad. It's just Mm -hmm. the worst. But Jurassic Park is probably my favorite movie ever. Yeah, that first one holds up, I argue. It's so good. And the book is so good. Like, it's a perfect work of science fiction. It's so, it's like, tight and well-paced and great. Anyway, I've reread it, like, five times. So now I'm going to, I'm now I'm going to listen to the audiobook. That's what I'm Maybe, reading. I'm wishing I had reread that instead. I, I reread Sphere this summer. And, yeah, and, like, the racism and sexism in that book is rough. Um, I should have reread Jurassic Park instead, clearly. I, you know, I love, when I was watching the movie, I just watched it with my kids for the first time this week. And the way that they treat Ellie in the movie is so great. Like, nobody ever says anything about how she's, you know, less competent in a survival situation Mm -hmm. for being... They just, like, assume her competence. And so there's one moment when the old man is like, shouldn't I do this because I'm a dude? And she's like, just shut up. And then that's it. Like, that's all... It's so good. I love it so much. But what about in the book, though? I don't remember. I, I don't oh. remember. I think I, I think the last time I reread it was before I was terribly woke. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see I would be goes. curious to hear your book report on mm-hmm. that. What about you? Um, I am reading The Tethered Mage by Melissa Caruso, which is is fun. It's really fun. Um, I'm reading a couple of really heavy books right now, and I was like, oh my gosh, I need something a little bit lighter to like break this up. And this is ideal. Um, it is about a sort of like, in my head, it's like a mashup of the Roman Empire plus Venice. Um, yeah, and it's, uh, you know, but like medieval magic, and children are born with... With like not everybody has magic and some children who are born with it you can tell by the way their eyes look and they're basically like conscripted to become falcons and they get like this like bracelet put on them that controls their magic and only their falconer sort of their you know I don't know like bonded mage controller person can like allow them to release their powers and can also turn them off um 
And, like, they try to make this, like, oh, it's for their own protection because especially kids with strong powers, like, don't always know how to control it. And, you know, they get fed and they have good housing and theoretically their falcons are like you know the falconers are good to them and become friends and whatever and sometimes it works out great um but there's a woman who has basically managed to live to her i can't tell if she's like late teen or adult young adult years um without becoming you know marked by this and they find her and they you know control her but accidentally the woman who helps like subdue her powers which are out of control like fire powers is a noble and nobles aren't supposed to get to be falconers because it gives them undue power um in the political structure and then at the same time that all of this is going on there's also like pending war with one of the cities vassal city states and a rival empire and like lots of political shenanigans um and i'm really enjoying it it's it's so far it's really well paced and the characters are really entertaining and there's been you know queer people on the page and and it's been it's been really fun so far so that is the tethered mage by melissa caruso All right, so this is a recommendation show, as we said at the top, which means that you send us questions about what you should read next, and we do our best to answer them. It can be for your book club or for yourself or for your mom or your kids or a nephew or what should you read when you're going on vacation somewhere. We will do our best to find you some good options. You can send us those questions either via the form that's at the bottom of the show notes on the site for every uh, episode, or you can email them to us at getbooked at bookriot.com. If you have a time-sensitive question, please put time-sensitive in the subject line or the very first line of the form and the date that you would like a response by. We will do our best. Um, If we don't think we're going to get to it on air by the time frame, we might shoot you an email response, so keep an eye out for those. If you've sent in a question that we have covered recently or more than once, we might also email you a response. Um, Oh, let's see. Some housekeeping. We have a $500 YA book giveaway going on, which is the best of the year so far, our choices for the best of the year so far in YA specifically. And you can enter that at bookriot.com slash 500YA giveaway. And it ends on July 31st. So do not sleep. There's some super good books in there. And some feedback from previous episodes uh, from listeners. So Megan, who was looking for books about Japanese culture for kids, this recommendation is for Cheese Sweet Adventure by Konami Kanada, um, which in which a family adopts a lost kitten and it is told from the kitten's perspective. That sounds adorable. Um, there's Yotsuba ampersand exclamation mark uh, by Kiyohiko Azuma, which is about a young precocious girl and her adoptive father who moved to a new Japanese town. Cute oddball humor mixed with great events like trips to the beach. Um, I cannot tell who that was from. And then for Ingrid, who is looking for light topics or genre fiction in translation, The Winter Queen by Boris Akunin, uh, which is about Sherlock Holmes if Sherlock Holmes were a young, goofy Russian civil servant taking things very seriously in 19th century Moscow. (laughs) Um, Very entertaining. Apparently, a young aristocrat commits suicide in the public gardens in broad daylight and murder and conspiracy ensue. So thank you to the person who sent in those suggestions. Um, I am going to read the first question, and Amanda is going to do our first sponsor, and away we will go. So the first question is from Robin, who says, my husband and I will be 
traveling to the Azores in September 2018, and I would love to get my hands on a page-turner that takes place on one of the islands. I love historical fiction, murder mysteries, contemporary fiction, and nonfiction, as long as it reads like a novel. I'm good with 300 to 500 pages, but I like to keep things moving, so over 500 seems like homework to me. No issues with triggers. All right. Uh, Why don't you tell us about our sponsor, Amanda? Okie dokie. Our first sponsor is us, and our second sponsor is also us. But our first sponsor is Recommended, which is um, our podcast where we talk to interesting people about the books they love. So every episode is about 20 minutes and features two interviews with guests from the book world, each discussing an all-time favorite book. So it could be a best-selling author, an editor you know, who works behind the scenes in the literary world, an industry insider, whomever. They've all got a book to recommend to you. Hence the title, Recommended. Um, season one is available in full. Season two is currently airing. Um, past guests that we've had on the show Um, included National Book Foundation Executive Director Lisa Lucas, who is amazing, Um, Salam Reed's editor Zareen Jaffrey, Uh, authors like Lee Bardugo, Jasmine Ward, Attica Locke, uh, James McBride, Tessa Dare, Joe Hill, many, many, many more. So uh, as one listener said, hearing the authors give such passionate book recommendations makes me want to read them all. The only competition is the recommended books. So find out what books have shaped the lives and careers of some of your favorite authors. Um, you can subscribe to the show to recommend it on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. Thanks, us. Thanks, us. <laughs> okay, I'm going to keep going. Um, I had to Google the Azores. <laughs> oh, same. Deeply same. <laughs> I was like, I've, I've vaguely heard of that, but I have no idea where that is. So for those of you out there who also don't know where that is, it's an archipelago, uh, archipelago, thank you, off the coast of Portugal. So like a collection of islands off the coast of Portugal. So I have picked for you Death at the Water's Edge by Miriam Winthrop, which is the first in a series called the Heritage Mystery Series. And each book in the series is set on a different island in the Azores. Um, so the main characters are Anton and Katerina Cardosa, and they um, have decided to move to the Azores, and in order to help, like, preserve the unique local culture, they've moved to Santa Maria, and their plan is to transform this really run-down property, piece of property, into a rural hotel, which they want to call Casa de Mar. Um, But then, the first murder occurs on the island in, like, living history. Like, there have been no homicides on the island as for as long as anyone can remember. Um, and this murder, you know, threatens to upend all of their plans to open this really charming um, business and help preserve the local culture of a place that they really love. Um, so you're getting both, you know, like cozy mystery stuff, but also like a look at the heritage and cultural history Um, and general history of the Azores as a whole, and also really specific, like dialed in local color, um, because each book in the series is set on a different island. And they're all pretty short. Like this first one is about 190 pages. So I think like depending on how long you're staying on the island, you might be able to get through all of them, which I think would be pretty cool. If you're island hopping, you could read, uh, read the one that's set everywhere that you're going. So that's Death at the Water's Edge by Miriam Winthrop. So it turns out there are not a ton of books set on the Azores. Um, There's just not that many. Uh, And I'm giving you one from my TBR that is sort of adjacent. Um, It is The Stone Raft by Jose Saramago, who is amazing. Um, And this one is a what if. It's about, it's like a fable, a contemporary fable about if one day Europe like just kind of cracks along the pyramid and the Iberian Peninsula goes floating out into the ocean towards the Azores. Um, 
So there are obviously, there's a lot of panic. Um, the authorities and the tourists and investors are all freaking out and trying to get off of it. Um, but a group of people, uh, three men, two women, and a dog, are drawn together by mysterious portents um, that like give them sort of a mission. So they are on an adventure um, across this new floating island. And it sounds really fun. And Saramago is an amazing amazing writer. Um, it's only about 270 odd pages, so it should go pretty quick. And like uh, this kind of modern fable is a thing that I love to see, um, especially this kind of wacky premise. Like that just sounds super fun, like very good vacation reading. Um, so not precisely what you were asking for, but I feel like pretty close. So that is The Stone Raft by Jose Saramago. Okay, question two is from Kate, who says, I really want to get a book for a friend of mine before I leave town. I don't know when I'll see her next after I leave, so I'm anxious to get it right. I sneakily asked her about her favorite books, and after the usual, how could I ever choose? This was her response. Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, The Secret Garden, um, for authors, Jane Austen, Neil Gaiman, and Patrick Rothfuss. Okay, I picked Shades of Milk and Honey by Mary Robinette Cowell. She seems to like... Um, m not super, super dark magic and, uh, you know, Austin-y type... English countryside sort of settings. So Shades of Milk and Honey is like a fantasy version of Pride and Prejudice. The main character's name is Jane, and her and her sister Melody live in like kind of the Regency era, but in this, this world where magic exists. They call it glamour. And everybody has some level of this skill, um, even if it's just a tiny little bit. Some people are extremely talented at it, but it's the ability to manipulate and create illusions, so manipulate what people see, smell, hear. Um, every woman, is, uh, you know, like a woman of quality, quote-unquote, uh, is trained in, you know, like you read Jane Austen and, and they're trained to, like, embroider and play the pianoforte and all that sort of thing. In this universe, they are trained to um, perform glamours in order to, like, make a room smell really nice or look really fancy or to very subtly alter their appearances so they look prettier and this sort of thing. Jane, the main character, is very talented at creating glamour. And she's very smart and very witty. She's not super pretty and she's getting kind of old and is unmarried. So this is the thing that she's dealing with. Her sister Melody is beautiful, but not super smart and not very good at magic. And so they have these competing skills or qualities and they um, vie against each other uh, lovingly, sometimes, sometimes not so much for the attention of the like eligible, eligible bachelors in the neighborhood. Um, and when one of these suitors starts taking advantage of Melody in a way that is like obvious to everyone who isn't Melody that he's after her for her money, Jane like is going to take things into her own hands and use her magic to kind of set things right. Um, while she does that, or in the process of doing that, she gets involved in her own kind of love um, situation, love shapes, her own <laughs> romance, um, with a cranky, cranky, cranky glamour, I don't, glamouralist there. I don't remember the word that she, that they use in the universe to describe, uh, dudes who are really good at this magic. But anyway, he's like a very famous artist who uses glamour to create these really huge murals and, um, is being paid by a wealthy local family to like keep up their, uh, house. Anyway, he's very cranky. It's very Mr. Darcy and, and Elizabeth sort of a thing going on. Um, and that's not a spoiler because obviously this is a, a Pride and Prejudice retelling. So you know what you're getting into. But it is super Austin-y in that like, I'm going to drink tea and sit here and say very rude things very nicely kind of way um, <laughs> with the addition of so, an interesting magical universe. So and that is also the first in the series. So that's Shades of Milk and Honey by Mary Robinette Cowell. 
Excellent. Um, I went back and forth on my pick. There were so many books I wanted to pick for you, but I settled on Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik because it is super recent, and so the odds are hopefully that she has not gotten it already. Um, this book comes with a trigger warning for scenes of domestic violence and physical child abuse. Um, it's kind of it's it's really hard to talk about this book without talking about it because it's very essential to the plot. So I'm going to briefly touch on it. Um, so it is a retelling of a bunch of different fantasies, probably including some I didn't notice. Honestly, there's a whole bunch rolled in here, but there's definitely Rumpelstiltskin. There's also these like Earl King sort of you know the fairy king under the mountain, um, and there is uh, Shades of the Juniper Tree in here as well. So um, that sort of like Neil Gaiman like playing around with folklore and magic and source material, that's definitely in here. Um, And it follows a bunch of different narrators. And that's one of the things I loved about this book is it really pulls it off. But my three favorites were Miriam, who is uh, Jewish. It's set in this like medieval Russian inspired land. Um, And they live in a very small village. And her father is a sort of hapless money lender. He often gives people money, but never goes to collect in return. Um, And so her mother gets very sick one winter, and she decides to take things into her own hands because, like, literally, if she doesn't get some food on the table and some fire in the, you know, hearth, her mother's going to die. So she starts going around and collecting herself. Um, And to do this, she kind of has to become, like, you know, a harder, more isolated version of herself. Um, And so you see her in this, like, sort of evolution of just trying to, like, provide for herself and her family. and, you know, just get, like, a return on what was already loaned and what that looks like. So she's tackling anti-Semitism here um, in a really pointed way, which is interesting. And then there's a villager girl, Wanda, whose father is abusive. And all she wants is to be out of the house. And she ends up getting hired by Miriam's family to help out. And then there's another young woman, Arena, who is the daughter of a duke um, and is, like, lives in the closest city to this village. And she has kind of been like benignly neglected she's not pretty enough to be a useful bargaining chip for marriage alliances and so she's just kind of ignored by most of the household um her mother died when she was young and now there's a stepmother who's like again like not super mean but like just nobody's doing anything with her um and she actually has some fairy blood in her, which comes to play a big part of the story. Um, and Miriam, in the meantime, gets so good at like m- this money lending game that she brags as she's traveling around that she can turn silver into gold. And the fairy king hears her, whoops, <laughs> and now wants her to do these increasingly impossible feats of magic. Um, and it turns from this like very personal story to this huge, like epic battle, and there's forces and really complicated intersections of people's lives and who's gonna win and oh my gosh what's gonna happen like it's very intense um and I think this is my favorite book that Naomi Novik has written I haven't read every single one of the Temeraire books but I've read a few um and I read Uprooted and I like this one just just so much it's just really good I think it's the timeliest book she's ever written and it's really beautifully paced um for the most part I do have some like quibbles for the ending but they come out of me like caring so much about 
about certain characters that I had like <laughs> built this whole headcanon around what was going to happen. And then when that didn't happen, I was very sad. <laughs> but it's a really great book. And I think anybody who loves retold fairy tales and like that intense, like high stakes fantasy will really get into it. So that's Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. All right. Next question is from Emma, who says, I'm hoping you can help me out with what might be a niche request. I would love to read something that includes an interracial, interfaith relationship or family. It does not need to be any specific race slash ethnicity or faith, but if it can include these two components, that would be great. Either fiction or nonfiction is great. Amanda, what you got? I picked a romance. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's called Wrong to Need You by Alicia Rye. It's the second book in the Forbidden Heart series. And usually I'll say, you know, that thing about how you don't need to read the, these books in order in a romance series. But actually, I think in this case, you probably should. Um, the background of why the two families that the books center around hate each other so intensely is really laid out in the first book. And I feel like you need that background information. Um, the first book is called Hate to Want You. So I actually would read that first before you read this one. Um, anyway, all of that said, uh, the, the two main characters in this book, the heroine's name is Sadia. And she is a widow with a six-year-old son. She's a single mom who owns a cafe that her husband left to her. She also bartends at night. And her husband's cafe also left her um, like a mountain of debt that he did not tell her about. Um, and the hero's name is Jackson. And Jackson is Sadia's brother-in-law, her dead husband's brother. Um, Jackson was accused of burning down a uh, grocery store when he was younger, 10 years ago. Uh, and he fled the city or the, town, the little town that the book takes place in. Um, and has been gone for 10 years. Sadia and Jackson were best friends growing up and were best friends all through their adulthood. And when he left, he stopped all contact with everyone from his hometown, including his family and including Sadia. She emails him over the course of that 10 years, um, you know, sending updates about his nephew being born and things that are going on in her life, asking where he is, why isn't he answering. She sends one final email when his brother dies um, that he doesn't answer, and then she stops trying. And then one day, he shows back up in town. <laughs> um, he's, he's come back to town to help his twin sister out uh, with something that's going on in her life, which you will read all about in book one, um, and just shows up in the bar where Sadia works, and she very understandably tosses a drink in his face. Um, because he hasn't been there for her for a whole decade of all of these things that she's going through. And then through the course of the book, you they, they, they start to you know work through their stuff, uh, fall for each other. It's a romance, so I'm sure you know where this is going. Jackson has loved Sadia since they were children, um, and they both have like deep, dark secrets about their families. Um, the interfaith um, or different ethnic backgrounds are that Sadia it comes from a Muslim family, um, her family is from Pakistan. She is, I think, like the middle daughter of five daughters. And Jackson's family is half Japanese, half Hawaiian. And so there's a lot of um, his family history based around uh, his family um, experiencing internment during World War II in the U.S. Um, there's not a lot of religious elements in the book. Like they, they, Sadia talks about her family and talks about being Muslim sometimes a little, like a, like it's mentioned, but it's not, neither character is very invested in their, in any sort of faith whatsoever. Um, for Sadia, I think it's more of like a cultural kind of thing. And Jackson doesn't talk about it at all, but they both have very specific, um, 
experiences and points of view and families, family um, history based on where their families have come from. So that is a big element. The faith part, not so much, but, but the cultural experiences both of their families have really inform both of these characters' experiences and how they treat each other in a lot of ways. So it's very steamy. Jackson is a hard dude to love, I think, out of all of the romances that I've read in my life. Um, disagree. <laughs> really? I can't stand him. Like, I could not. What? I can't believe she talks to him at all. I liked him so much better than Nicholas, to oh, be perfectly I honest. I mean, I didn't, whatever. Eh. I, I think if you like, if you like beta dudes, he is your dude. He's like yes. sh- very shy. Um, there's a little, like a little hint of kind of a bdsm sort of relationship between the two of them, but she is the dominant character in that relationship. Um, uh, which is fine. I just was so mad at him for her fair, fair. <laughs> and I never got over it. Um, so, but yeah, Alicia Rye's romances are all very angsty and this one is no exception. So that's wrong to need you by Alicia Rye, but please read hate to want you first. Okay. They're all really good. Uh, the, that trilogy, which is complete by the way, it's very excellent. Um, I picked Everything I Never Told You by Celeste Ng for you. It is a interracial marriage um, and then family, obviously. Um, the main characters are uh, Marilyn, who is uh, from Virginia and is white, and then James, who is Chinese-American. And they met in college in Boston and then ended up in Ohio um, after getting married and then started having children. Um, and they have three children at the opening of the book. And the their middle daughter is, right? She's the middle daughter yes um has is dead um and the book like that's not a spoiler like it opens with this um and she has been murdered and they are not sure what has happened and like don't even know when the book opens up and so it's both about like having an interracial family and an interracial relationship but it's also um it's set in the 70s so it's like about you know politics and gender and like like, you know, leaving your very waspy background and marrying somebody maybe your parents, like, don't necessarily approve of and, like, wanting things for yourself that you don't get. Um, and then, you know, from James's side, like, being an outsider and coming up against all of this prejudice. And then, you know, like, what is it that you want for your children? And this book is very much about that, like, pinning all of your hopes for the things that you didn't get to do on your children and then how that affects your family life. So, like, it's a little bit of a murder story, but it's very much more about family and race and, like, how we deal with all of those things. So, again, that is Everything I Never Told You by Celeste Ng. Okay, question four is from Lauren, who says, I'm looking for Rex for my mom. She's a voracious mystery reader. She flies through books very quickly. I gave her the Flavia Deleuze series after loving it and hearing about it through you, and she finished the series in a week. Wow. And asked me for more. I shared a recent episode with her where you recommended IQ, and she loved that as well. She read both of those, and we're back at square one. She's read the huge names. Uh, She has full leather-bound collections of Agatha Christie, loves Rex Stout, uh, read all of Sue Grafton, J.D. Robb, Robert Galbraith. Janet Ivanovich, Clive Cussler. Her other favorite series is The Dresden Files. I think she likes rogue-type main characters who work alone and stories set in richly written worlds or cities. She likes more mystery than thriller, although she enjoys it when they intermix. 
Okay, I picked The Widows of Malabar Hill by Sujata Masi, which is about a rogue-type main character who works alone and a story set in a richly written world. <laughs> so, yay. Um, this is the first book in a series, I, but it's a very recent release, so I don't... No, the second one isn't even on Goodreads at all, so maybe not so much. Um, the Widows of Malabar Hill, yeah. I don't know when the second one's coming out. Sorry about that. So this takes place in Bombay in 1921, and our sleuth is Praveen Mystery, who is the first... one one of the first female lawyers in India. She works for her father's law firm. Um, her father's very comes from, her father her father's firm is very respected. Her family is a very respected um, Zoroastrian family. Um, so she went off to Oxford, got her law degree, and has come back. Um, and her story about what happened to her when she went off to Oxford is complicated and a little traumatizing. Um, so you you get to learn more about her as the book continues. But the mystery that's happening here is that her father's firm handle, is handling the will of a man named Omar Farid, who is a wealthy Muslim owner of a mill who has died recently, and he has three widows. Um, but as Praveen is going through all of like the inheritance papers, she noticed that all three of the widows have signed their inheritance over to a mysterious kind of charity, and she doesn't understand what they're going to live on if they give up everything that, that their husband left them. So she gets a little bit suspicious. The problem is the widows are in Perda. They live in very strict seclusion. They're not, um, they, they don't talk to men. They're not, they don't see men ex- unless they're guardians or people, uh, male members of their family. Uh, and so her father, who is their lawyer, can't go ask them what happened or like, why did you sign this? So she decides to go do it herself. When she gets to the house, she realizes that the, the man that is guard, that is like acting as the guardian for the widows has some kind of sketchy motives maybe. And then while she's there, he's murdered <laughs> by who knows, because there's like secret passages in this house and all of the women are in seclusion. So maybe they couldn't have done it. There are also a lot of children. There are servants. Like, who did it? Um, And this is what she is trying to figure out. Um, So it's got, like, a really great, rich historical, uh, rich historical elements to it. Um, It takes the, the, like, jumping back and forth from India, from Bombay to Oxford is really great. Um, That contrast is really stark. Praveen is an excellent character. She manages to navigate not only the world of, like, the English who like the colonialists who are living in Bombay and her own, but also her, her family, which is Zoroastrian. And then also this Muslim family, she navigates all that very respectfully. It's just so interesting. And the, the, the mystery is um, also like, just who did it? Like what, how is this possible? Because they're all (laughs) locked up. (laughs) Like they're all locked in their own little quarters. So like, how could they possibly have, it's just fascinating. So that's the widows of Malabar Hill by Sujata Masi. I wanted to give you a Dresden Files comp, um, and I will admit that once I started reading this series, which I found after Dresden Files, it dethroned it as my favorite urban fantasy with a rogue main character. (laughs) Um, It's Magic Bites by Kate Daniels, or excuse me, by Ilona Andrews, and it's the first in the Kate Daniels series. There we go. And this is set in a Atlanta where there's sort of been an apocalypse, but it's like a, it's not the apocalypse you're thinking. What has happened is that magic has suddenly returned to the world. And now based on like 
time of day, weather, who knows, um, magic and technology trade places in terms of function. So when the magic is up, uh, you can cast spells, but you can't use your telephone. <laughs> and when the magic is down, like your car works, but you can't do any magic. So it's really, it's a really fascinating premise. And the main character, uh, Kate Daniels, it was raised from a young age to be like basically like an assassin. Um, And she has really strong magic that she's hiding. And she is very much a loner in this first book. Um, Although she, like, seeing her develop as a character over the books and, like, start to get, like, her people and her found family is amazing. Um, But in the first book, she's very alone kind of prickly and like drinks too much and is picking fights with people she shouldn't fight, pick fights with, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but ultimately very good hearted. And when the book opens, her guardian, um, who was like the one nice person in her life has been murdered. And so she's trying to figure out what has happened and who did it. Um, and she is just amazing. She's so prickly. Um, and she's like, you, she keeps her secrets really close to the vest. So you don't always know because you're sort of in her first person POV. Like you don't always know what the thing is that she's hiding until suddenly it comes out and you're like, Oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, she's like a sword fighting, you know, kicking, punching, also doing some really amazing magic sort of heroine. And um, they are very like the Dresden Files in that each one is its own self-contained mystery, but they build in a much bigger arc over the course of the series. And there's also a lot of like, like they edge towards paranormal romance at certain moments. There's some steamy scenes. Um, There's a lion. I'm just saying. Um, So that's a lot of fun. So that's, again, Magic Bites, which is the first in the Kate Daniels series by Ilona Andrews. And it is time for our second sponsor, which is also us. It's Book Riot Insiders. Hey, hey. Uh, So you can level up your reading life with a 14-day free trial for the novel level of Book Riot Insiders. Um, That level includes a ton of good things. You can play with the new release index, which Liberty Hardy from all the books and the New Books newsletter keeps updated with the most interesting of the upcoming releases. You can build your own watch list so you can remember when things are coming out that you want to get. Um, we have two exclusive podcasts. We have a special newsletter. There is a monthly mailbag drawing. And Novel Level also gets first crack at the epic spots when they open up, which includes the Insiders Forum. So it's a really sweet deal. And you can have two weeks totally free. Um, and you should definitely give it a try. So that's bookriot.com slash insiders. And it is basically utopia for book nerds. So give it a whirl. Uh, okay. So let's see. For our fifth question, it is from Bess, who says, I love wine, but I'm much more of a connoisseur of quantity, not quality. (laughs) A big fan of cardboard dough. That's hilarious. Um, I'd like to know more about wine and what makes wine good. Can you recommend any readable nonfiction or fiction if it's very informative about wine that isn't too pretentious? I'm just going to keep talking. So the book I picked for you is one that I sold like a bajillion copies of when I worked in the bookstore when it first came out. Uh, It's The Billionaire's Vinegar, The Mystery of the World's Most Expensive Bottle of Wine by Benjamin Wallace. And this is such a fascinating story. It's all true. Um, It is nonfiction. There was this bottle of a Bordeaux that sold for $156,000 at auction. It was supposedly owned by Thomas Jefferson. And it had this whole like crazy story around it. Like, oh, it was in a 
were a cellar for 200 years or maybe it was in a secret Nazi bunker or like who had it for like the provenances under sort of um, under sort of, you know, mystery. And then also maybe it's not even really what it says it is. Like maybe it doesn't actually was not owned by Thomas Jefferson. Um, so Wallace sort of digs into this, the history and like current whereabouts of this bottle of wine that was supposedly owned by Thomas Jefferson. And like, you know, you meet all of these crazy wacky people from the wine world. Like, a, you know, there's an auctioneer and like an obsessive wine collector. And it's a really fascinating story. Um, and it's definitely like kind of breaks down some of the like pretentiousness and mythos surrounding wine because like it literally could be a bottle of nothing. Like it's like, is this real? How like hepped up do people get about things that aren't even real? Like what are all of these personalities in the wine world? Like I think you'll find it very entertaining. So that is The Billionaire's Vinegar by Benjamin Wallace. Okay, I picked Cork Dork. A wine-fueled adventure among the obsessive sommeliers, big bottle hunters, and rogue scientists who taught me to live for taste by Bianca Bosker. As you can tell, this was written when it was trendy to have super long subtitles, uh, <laughs> which was like two years ago. Why? Why? Anyway, uh, so Cork Dork is, if you're like into Mary Roach, I think that this would be a great pick for you about wine. Bianca is a journalist who very much like most of us and like the person writing into us uh, drinks wine because it's yummy, like at the end of the day or with dinner or whatever. Um, but she didn't have any background at all in the the, the whatnots and why fours of wine. Um, so she takes a year and a half and goes like takes a deep dive into the the world of people who are like super obsessed with collecting specific bottles, um, sommeliers. She uh, joins really elite tasting groups, um, gets like befriends all of these people who like, you know, with a sip of wine can identify the grape and where it was produced within like a few acres and the year that it was harvested um, as opposed to like, yeah, this tastes like red wine, which is, you know, how <laughs> I live my life. Uh, and so she um, gets like, she goes, behind the scenes into these really exclusive like New York City restaurants. She visits a bunch of wineries. Um, she becomes, I don't remember, a, a cellar, cellar rat, I think was the term, where she starts like at the very bottom of the uh, ladder working in wineries um, to learn everything about how wine is made. And then goes all the way up to the top of these like exclusive tasting uh, classes. She becomes a judge for like a, a sommelier competition. Um, and... She also, there's also the, the Mary Roach part of it is like visiting a neuroscientist while they're doing MRIs on people who have dressed, had some wine to like think about the different, the ways that your, your, your brain recognizes the various taste profiles, um, and, and the smells and all of that. So it's like every aspect of what makes wine a thing people can become obsessed with, um, and both at, from, from every perspective, like growers, um, you know, sommeliers, judges of those competitions, professional tasters, but there's also information about like the do's and don'ts of how to, how you're supposed to serve it. Um, which was very confusing to me because I oh, thought yeah, decanting, That's yeah, the decanting thing. stuff and like how letting it breathe. And, you know, I open a bottle and I pour it in a glass and then I drink it <laughs> like a, like a putz. I don't That's know. That's right. Like <laughs> but a the, the lists of like what you're not supposed to do with specific kinds of wine is so long and just confusing. Um, but it makes a difference, I guess, apparently. Um, so everything that you need to know 
about wine and its background and how it's made and how people get super, super into it is in this book. But it's written in a very, I mean, it's not pretentious at all. This is a journalist who had no background in this and is not invested in like wine as an elite thing. She's just like fascinated by people who are invested in wine as an elite thing. So it's a very outsider kind of perspective. So that's Cork Dork by Bianca Bosker. It just occurs to me, I can't remember what it's called, but John Cleese did a wine documentary that was did he? because John Cleese, yeah, like hilarious. Um, and like did one of those blind tastings where you're like drinking out of like a thermos and you can't tell what's in it. And can you even identify if it's red or white? I will try to find for the show notes the name of that because I do remember watching that and laughing a lot. I think I could tell the difference between a red and a white, but that would be it. <laughs> like that would be the extent of apparently it's actually people do not do as well on that as you would think. Huh. Yeah. Huh, okay. Yeah. I believe I believe that a lot of the things that we think are important are ultimately not. So that makes sense <laughs> to me. All right, question six is from Melissa, who says, I was talking to my sister recently, and she mentioned that I should read books that aren't so dark and heavy. Having a bit of time to think about it, she is right, and I need to lighten up my reading. Do you or your listeners have any ideas as to how to make my reading not so heavy? Some of the books that I've enjoyed are... A Town Like Alice, Jane Eyre, Outlander, Burial Rights, Crime and Punishment, Alias Grace, um, To Kill a Mockingbird, Station Eleven, Harry Potter, among others. Okay, um, I picked 84 Charing Cross Road by Helen Humph. You mentioned uh, Tale of Two Cities, All Quiet on the Western Front. You seem to like war stuff, uh, but so, so I kind of went on a, to a, like a lighter version of a book that has... <laughs> hints of war happening. So 84 Charing Cross Road is a collection of letters between Helen, who was a freelance writer living in New York, and a used book dealer who was living in London at 84 Charing Cross Road. And these are actual, like, actual letters put in envelopes and sent to each other over, like, 40 years or some amazing amount of time. Um, Their correspondence first starts, I can't remember if it's just after the World War II has ended, or if it's still happening, there's a lot of talk of like rations. Helen sends uh, the book dealer um, like gifts of, of rationed foods and, and like pantyhose for his wife and things like that. And they develop this friendship over the course of all of these years. Um, they never actually meet. They plan to meet several times, but she can't ever get get over there. Uh, she can't like get the money together to get to London. He's got a family and a business that he's running and he can't leave either. But they they develop this like just very charming friendship based on how Helen is kind of a book snob. And or is it Helene? I haven't seen it. I know there's a movie, but I've not heard her name pronounced out loud. I haven't seen the movie. Um, but she she's a book snob in this like just very self-deprecating way where she doesn't it's not necessarily that she wants to read like great literature so much as she doesn't like the way that American books are made like they just feel cheap to her so she gets into like corresponding with used book dealers looking for older versions of the books that she wants to read because they they feel better like they she wants to use her you know paper knife and all of the sorts of things um so that's why she originally starts corresponding with him and then he starts recommending other books to her that that um he thinks she might like and you know they talk about current events a little bit but it's mostly really about you know plato and and here's some cookies because war war rations are the worst aren't they and it's just like very light like they 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 glance on you know serious things helene deals with um unemployment a good bit um, you know, deaths in the family, all that kind of stuff. And sometimes there are years in between the letters that they write each other because of just all the things that are, ha- you know, that happen in your life. But the fact that they managed to maintain this correspondence over decades um, until the book dealer dies. And then his, then she then she sets up a correspondence with his wife. 
um, and family. And it's just like very heartwarming and nice. Like it's just nice, you know, like, oh, I don't know. I love it. So that's 84 Charing Cross Road by Helene Hamph. I did not intentionally pick a war book for you, but I did. But it it just occurred to me as Amanda was talking, like, "Oh, we have an accidental theme here." Um, I pitched. I picked Witchmark by C.L. Polk, which was the book that most recently felt like a hug for my brain. Although also the book that I mentioned I was reading now, The Tethered Mage, might also be good for you. Um, But so this is a fantasy. Witchmark is great. It is set in a sort of Edwardian England esque era um, with a sort of corollary of the First World War. And the main character is a guy named Miles Singer who works in a veteran's hospital. He himself is a veteran soldier and he has some magic, but in this society, like it's not allowed. So you have to keep it a secret. So he like uses his magic very stealthily to try to help these, you know, scarred, traumatized and wounded soldiers um, to reacclimate to life, to heal in whatever way that they can. Um, the war is still sort of ongoing and um, things like seem to be maybe getting to a place where there will be an armistice, but it's very complicated. Um, And he, it turns out, is not who he says he is. He's a little bit in hiding and his cover gets blown and he starts having to reckon with politics, um, with the reasons that he went underground in the first place and also trying to like continue to help these soldiers who he feels so uh, connected to because of his own experiences. And this book, it sounds really heavy and like it's not without stakes, but the way it's all handled is so good and the emotion are so well portrayed and there's this beautiful gay romance in it and I just like this book when I put it down I was like oh that was great like I just felt good about the book and about having spent the time reading it and there's definitely it's good the first in a series and like everything is not resolved at the end but it is a very satisfying ending it's not like a major cliffhanger where you're like oh what's gonna happen like I want to know what happens next but I feel so good about where the characters end ended up at the end of this and like about the reveals that we got. Oh, it's just, I just thought it was a delightful read. Um, so that again is Witchmark by C.L. Polk. And our last question is from Holly, who says, I recently read a book that totally blew my mind. I'm thinking of ending things by Ian Reed. It had such an effect on me that I immediately reread it. I'm looking for similar books, unsettling, creepy, and with an overwhelming sense of something's not right here dread. I already read Bird Box, Head Full of Ghosts, and House of Leaves. Please help this fellow book nerd. What you got, Amanda? Um, I picked a bit of a classic in the something's not right here, I am full of dread subgenre, which is We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. And this is about um, a pair of sisters, Mira Cat and Constance, who live on a very large family estate uh, with their their uncle, Julian. Um, They live in kind of a small like village town, um, and they live alone, the three of them, in this big, sprawling family. Not long ago, the, the Blackwoods, that's their last name, was a much larger family, mother, father, you know, other siblings. And then one evening at dinner, a um, they're, they're poisoned. A fatal dose of arsenic makes its way into the sugar bowl um, and everyone dies except these three, Constance, Maricat, and Uncle Julian. Constance is the older sister and she is accused of 
the murder. She's kind of like the cook for the family. It's assumed that she was the one with access to the sugar bowl. So she obviously did it, um, but they can't prove it definitively. So she's acquitted. She comes home. Uh, and then Meerkat, you know, protects her basically uh, from the villagers who are curious, voyeuristic, hostile, mean to them when they come out into public. And so they just kind of hang out by themselves. Um, they go in, uh, Meerkat, I think, goes into town like once a month for food and to go to the library and the post office and then like doesn't, they just don't go out after that. Um, and then one day uh, their cousin Charles shows up. He's grown and he is very obviously there like looking for money, maybe to get the house, um, maybe to marry Constance or one or the other, you know, uh, so that he can he can have access to the wealth of this family that is now functionally gone. Uh, Maricat immediately doesn't like him and um, starts is like just consistently hostile to him. Um, and the villagers become more, they're like the tension just kind of builds as the sisters fight over whether or not to accept Charles into their life, whether or not they need to change the way that they're living. Um, and all while this is happening, you don't know who actually poisoned their family. Um, you suspect from the beginning that it was one of the two sisters, but you know, if you go and you read the reviews there, people will argue over who they thought it was, um, from the very beginning. And you do find out eventually who it is, but it's just creepy. Like it's that feeling that you get when somebody runs their fingers up your back, that like shivery, like, Ooh, that's the whole book. Like you're just like, Ooh, the whole time, because both you can tell that both sisters are, um, hiding, like they're so attached to each other and they're hiding the truth of what happened from their own perspectives, like from themselves and from each other and from everyone else. And they're so insulated and so obsessed with like the house that they live in and keeping everyone else out. It's just weird. Like it's weird and creepy and squeaky. It's not particularly violent or anything. I mean, like, you know, a family is murdered <laughs> with poison, um, but it's not, it's not gory or jump scares or anything like that. It's just dreadful. Like the whole thing is just dreadful. So that's We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. Yeah, the something's not right here dread, for sure. I had a very visceral, like, oh, I know what book to pick. And <laughs> it is How to Be a Good Wife by Emma Chapman. Um, it is about a couple named Marta and Hector who've been married for a very long time. And Marta is um, basically staring down, like, empty nest syndrome. The son has left for university. And um, really, Marta's whole life, like, to the point where she can't even remember before she was married to Hector. Um, and she has like her goal has been to be a good wife and mother um, and the title comes from this manual that Hector's mother gave her on their wedding day um, but now things are like something is weird like she's starting to see things or maybe hear things and have memories that don't make any sense um, and like maybe she's on medication and is not taking it and things start to like unravel and you are just like what is going on <laughs> what is going on here um and it starts off so like simply like oh empty nest like it's depressing to like if when you've spent your entire life being a mother and a wife like and now part of that is gone and like but no like this book is about so much more than that um it is really dark and intense and if you are like not prepared for dark and intense like do not pick it up um that is all i will say about that so that is how to be a good wife by Emma Chapman. 
And that is our show. Thank you all so much for listening, as always. Um, if you get a chance to leave us a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts, we super appreciate it. It helps other folks to find the show, and we love to see feedback. Thank you to today's sponsors, which are us, for making our show possible. Um, you can find us on social media. I am on Tumblr. It's jenirl.tumblr.com, and that is Jen with two Ns. I am mostly on Instagram, and it's I am Amanda Nelson. And we'll talk to you next time. 